0: Welcome to the Unusual and Human Experience podcast, where we explore a mystery that has many faces and interacts with humanity all over the globe. Here we talk about the unusual, ancient, and contemporary. If you are curious about near-death and out-of-body experiences, encounters with UFOs, events of the paranormal, or even strange esoteric experiences, the Unusual and Human Experience podcast is for you. Host Kevin Keelis, a psychotherapist by trade, provides insightful conversations, sometimes with guest speakers familiar with the topic at hand. This podcast is educational and inspirational, its contents representing only the opinion of the host and, when applicable, his guest. Kevin is the author of three books, Bring Your Pen, Bring Your Broom, Last Breath Awareness, and Spiritual Care to Elderly and Dying Loved Ones and the founder of Conversing with Death, an existential training on last breath awareness. For more about his services, go to bodymindmetaphor.com. And now your host, Kevin Keeless.
1: Welcome to the Unusual and Human Experience Podcast. My name is Kevin, and today we're going to talk about mass hallucinations. So, what exactly is mass hallucinations? Well, we're going to get into that. Before we do, I do want to review some of what we've already talked about and what that means for you as the experiencer and what that means for you as the therapist. Now, I may sound different, and it's because I am struggling with a sinus infection and perhaps a little bit of a cold, so I hope you can bear with me. What we have talked about in the two previous episodes involves the DSM, or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, written by the American Psychiatric Association. And we really looked into areas that are often used to discredit and dismiss um, the experiences, sometimes held by more than one person, but experiences that involve unusual phenomena. We looked at things like schizophrenia, uh, different types of psychosis. We looked a little bit into... Brief Reactive Psychotic Disorder. And uh, we talked a little bit about how that actually developed. It actually sounded almost impossible to be that way, that someone who was a part of the DSM-3, Robert Spitzer, would conclude so quickly on something such as the Brief Reactive Psychotic Disorder after just listening to two psychiatrist from the same hospital. And out of that out of that meeting that uh, Robert Spitzer had with these two psychiatrists from the same hospital, he developed what is known as brief reactive psychotic disorder. I also mentioned that it's important to understand psychosis within the context. You know, when we talk to people who have had psychotic episodes, and then they can reflect back after recovery. They will tell you that there is sort of a beginning, a middle, and an end. The middle is usually the acute phase where hallucinations can take place. And often those hallucinations are more audible, but some do report visual uh, hallucinations. However, Keep in mind that hallucinations are sort of random and almost like a lot of little clips, right? You could, some will talk about, you know, feeling spiders crawling up their arms. Someone might see a monster or, you know, there's just these sort of quick, random experiences. And then I did something that may have surprised many, if not most of you, and that is that I challenged the credibility of the DSM, um, not to say that it does not have some aspects of help to understand uh, behavior, but based on a number of resources that I have yet to see um, the psychiatric community respond to. And that is that um, there seems to lack evidence for some of its claims as to understanding mental illness and to understanding the mental disorders that they have put in the book. Now, that's a big subject that just even trying to review would just sort of take me on a number of different paths. And I want to focus on mass hallucinations. But what I want you as an audience to get out of this is well, first to the experiencer, it would be that the mental health field and profession, the psychiatric community, are very important aspects to mental health. They have done a lot to assist um, the community in establishing and maintaining more of a sense of well-being. So I do not want you to discard that. And there may be times that those might be the resources to go to for help. Nevertheless, these sources are not without flaws. And when it comes to a friendly debate, it's important to notice the weakness of your opponent so that you will not be intimidated by your opponent or just accept what they say to be fact. It's okay to challenge the therapist and challenge the psychiatrist. And this is especially important when you have experienced an unusual phenomenon that cannot be explained, but that for some reason the system might want to label it as pathology. And so it's important to build your case and know your opponent's reasoning for trying to pathologize your experience. Now, for the therapist, this information might blow you away. We were not taught to challenge the DSM. We were simply told, this is the book. This is the psychiatrist's Bible. And when we graduate and go on to do our work, we simply assume that this big, thick book is scientific in nature. And we can lean on it to help us to understand human behavior. And then we learn that it may not necessarily be the case. And so we begin to look back at how we've done our work and realize, oh my God, it may not be as I thought or as I was taught. Once we recover from this revelation, it then becomes important for us to network with other professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, psychotherapists, social workers, who have also discovered the fallacy of the DSM to to construct a paradigm of healing that can take into account the client's social, economic, um, relational, and even career stressors um, and understand that these are Very strong factors in causing people to feel depressed, to feel anxious, and that in some cases to also experience some sort of psychotic episode. A very different model, wouldn't you say? We're taught that uh, mental disorders are as a result of an abnormality in the brain. Something that is so disempowering because if it is truly as a result of something physiological, then what does the recovery look like? And is recovery even possible? On the other hand, if we understand the enormous pressures of the external, such as the environment, our relationships, our careers, life events, then the idea of recovery is 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 more than possible and this is very important and very helpful for the experiencer then he or she can concentrate on telling the story while we help them to integrate it into their lives rather than the experiencer feeling like he or she has to somehow defend their normalcy. That just because the experience is bizarre doesn't mean it's pathology. So more time can be given to the healing process as opposed to creating some sort of an interrogation. That is not therapy. So right after the message, I'm going to begin our conversation on mass hallucination and we'll keep trying to put all of this together.
0: Body Mind Metaphor offers a range of virtual monthly groups to professionals looking for support, guidance, and up-to-date education. If you're a professional counselor, healthcare discipline, social worker, or pastoral counselor, you can choose from an exceptional list. If you're an experiencer, there's more exciting news. Body Mind Metaphor runs a free online monthly support group, a place for the experiencer, where you can talk with others about the challenges you face and learn how to make your mysterious encounter work for you. Seats are limited to eight members, so act now. For more information, go to bodymindmetaphor.com.
1: Mass hallucination is something that is rather interesting. Um, When you hear people use that to try to explain a collective experience, say, for example when um, a hundred people uh, see the Virgin Mary, um, someone will say, that was just mass hallucination. And what they're doing is they're not, again, honoring the human experience. What they're doing is they're saying, well, this can't happen. Therefore, this entire collective body had a hallucination that involved Mary. Now, why I think mass hallucination is such a stretch is that even in my lifetime and working with people who have had psychotic episodes and also listening to stories of people who have had psychotic episodes, it is very difficult to find more than one person having the same exact episode the same exact hallucination. It seems too far of a stretch. Now, when I looked for this word and tried to understand it throughout its history, it sort of made sense to me that, yes, it is a stretch, and it is used by people who want to discredit a collective experience. In other words, It has an agenda, and the agenda is to debunk the human experience. More right after this.
2: Bring Your Pen, Bring Your Broom brings together two healing communities, the psychotherapist and the witchy at heart. Only you'll be lucky to find them anywhere in the same room. The therapist easily misunderstands and labels the mystic, who in turn worries she'll be labelled crazy. But what happens when the esoteric practitioner seeks mental and emotional support to balance her often strange but sacred practice? This concise text guides the therapist to correct his miscalculations by dismantling those dormant stereotypes. The professional paves the way to offer necessary wisdom and skills to manage trauma, clinical depression and anxiety. The very things that can threaten the esoteric practitioner Bring Your Pen, Bring Your Broom also supplies the potential client with direction on how to effectively use therapy to prevent emotional unsteadiness while exercising those slippery rituals. Bring Your Pen, Bring Your Broom, now on Amazon in hardcover and paperback.
1: Mass hallucination was something that really sort of revitalized within the 1800s. And it was revitalized by at least one person, the name David Strauss, who was a German theologian. And it was during the time of what we would call the historical Jesus. Now, I went to seminary and I've studied around this for quite some time, but this might sound very foreign to you, so let me explain. There was a time in the 1800s where a number of German theologians were questioning the Bible they were questioning the stories within the Bible, and there were various interpretations on how to separate these uh, these stories of miracles and visions of ascensions from what they would call the person or the historical Jesus and so there were some who said, "Well, these stories were created." around this figure named Jesus, because they wanted to portray Jesus as the Messiah. And so they ascribed all these different stories to him, that he did miracles, that he died and was resurrected, and so on. And then there was also another way of interpreting the stories, and that was that if we're going to just assume the stories are there, then we can say that this entire body in the moment had what's called mass hallucination. And David Strauss, who is one of those German theologians, ascribed this sort of experience to a collective body. So his goal, as well as others, was to discredit the human experience, not to honor it. And what better way to do so than to sound very sophisticated, very psychological, and say these people had one mass hallucination. Now today, not to say that this theory is thrown around because some debunkers would use it, however, it is not even held with great regard even among those who um, circle around the DSM. Now, from time to time, I'll see someone, say a psychologist or someone who doesn't believe in unusual phenomena, um, try to somehow present mass hallucination or a history on mass hallucination as if it has very strong grounds, and uh, uh, but apart from that, I don't think I know of people in the field who would take that argument very far That's not to say that you won't hear it happen because it does. Let me give you an example When I worked in hospice, I worked in hospice for fifteen years there were there were a number of times that I saw what's called deathbed visions. And that was when the patient, the hospice patient, would do some sort of behavior or be having some sort of dialogue with someone. Um, They would sometimes reach up into the air or they would be talking to someone. Sometimes they would call this person or the people by name. And In the medical field, they would call that hallucinations. And because it is somewhat routine in hospice, and the public may not know this, but deathbed visions are something that happen commonly in the field of hospice. So we saw this and we see this happening time and again. And what's interesting is that While the medical community uh, either calls it or feels uh, compelled to call it hallucination, again, it's sort of strange to believe that more than one person can have the same hallucination. But what I found and what people often find is absolutely striking, and that is that Patients who have this sort of deathbed vision often are talking to people that they know. It's not just some random person, it's someone that they know. And some of them call out by name. And then family members who are present or who um, speak to the staff later on, Will say, Oh yeah, yeah, Howard was her brother, or something like that. And so there would be this identification, this sort of verification of, yeah, yeah, we knew Howard. Now, the other thing that was striking is that oftentimes the people that the patients were talking to were not only those who um They knew in real life, but that they died. Often the person was already deceased. Now, this is interesting to watch this pattern take place. This is not hallucination. So they not only know the person, but the person who they're talking to or reaching out for has already died. And equally striking is, and I can say this for what I saw, because I cannot remember a time when I saw a deathbed vision where the patient ended up feeling very uncomfortable or got scared or was troubled. They were often comforted by the visitation. And as if that is not enough, Listen to this one. Now, I was not doing research when I was doing hospice, so I didn't put pen to paper on these experiences and document them. But I can remember feeling this quite a bit. And fortunately, I have friends in the field, and I hear of people who work in hospice who also experience the same. And that is that. This type of experience, this type of visitation seemed to come much closer to when the patient was ready to transition out of this life. In other words, it just didn't happen when they just signed on to hospice. But as they declined and as they were nearing their last breath, they seemed to have this type of experience. All I say is how unfortunate for those who don't wish to look at a potential that says something about an experience that cannot be explained naturally, but for some reason a person needs to dismiss it. And we see the same thing happening with experiencers, whether it is about an apparition whether it's a family that experiences some sort of a haunting in their home or whether it involves a UFO, because the experience is bizarre does not mean it cannot happen. And the fact that there is more than one witness that is experiencing the event makes it all the more powerful. I mean, isn't that what gives weight in court, that when there is more than one witness that can verify an experience, that becomes powerful. But yet when it comes to the human experience, whether it's a UFO or an apparition, and there may be two or more, there may be a family or a couple, there may be even a neighborhood or a village, But because it is bizarre, because in our Western skeptical minds we believe such things do not exist, all of a sudden we discredit a group, a family, a village, a neighborhood, and we ascribe this very supposedly sophisticated title, mass hallucination. Not so, not so. What's wrong with this picture? And so it doesn't take much time before we can see the agenda behind someone using mass hallucination. Not only is it a far stretch, but it's very clear that a person just wants to discredit rather than investigate the human experience. So to those experiencers who witness things even collectively to the people in Arizona who saw the Phoenix Lights, to the children in Zimbabwe in 1994 at that school, to people like Charles Hickson and Calvin Park in Mississippi, and to people like Betty and Barney Hill, who were taking their trip in New Hampshire when they experienced something they were not expecting to experience. To all of you, and more, to those I have not mentioned, the countless of people throughout the world that experienced something so unusual that cannot be explained, I say to you, I believe you. And you were not crazy. Thank you. Body mind metaphor offers
0: traditional psychotherapy to adults seeking to recover from trauma and to manage depression and anxiety. Now, with a unique and necessary twist, it provides these same interventions to individuals who have experienced unusual phenomena, such as a near death experience, an encounter with a UFO, some mystical or esoteric transformation that proved distressful, or a paranormal event. Many who meet up with a strange experience often remain silent. Sometimes for years, for fear of being ridiculed or thought of as crazy. This isolation only inflames mental and emotional symptoms. It is therefore imperative that mental health professionals provide that safe space for clients to explore these experiences and integrate them into our lives. Body mind metaphor delivers just that by using talk therapy, hypnotherapy, and other therapeutic modalities. Remember, you are not alone, and you don't have to be. For more information, visit us at bodymindmetaphor.com